This is a Federal News Network podcast. The State Department is in the midst of an annual month-long program to generate ideas for how to stop trafficking in wildlife. It's sponsoring zoo hackathon sessions on three continents with what they are and how they work. From the Bureau of International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, Ali Swanson. Ms. Swanson, good to have you on. Thank you. Excited to be here. And the Zoo Hackathon Program Manager, Tori Peabody. Ms. Peabody, good to have you on. Thank you. Well, let's start with the big picture here. What is a Zoo Hackathon? So Zoo Hackathon is a global competition that brings university and students and coders together to develop innovative ideas and solutions to combat wildlife trafficking. This program raises awareness of global wildlife trafficking issues, and it inspires the next generation of conservation-minded coders. It also aims to build partnerships across the government, private sector, and intergovernmental stakeholders. And lastly, it strengthens international cooperation in the global fight against wildlife trafficking. Well, bridge the connection for me between software coding and stopping horrible people with spears and rifles and helicopters that are shooting animals. So as wildlife traffickers become increasingly sophisticated in the ways that they seek out poaching or otherwise capturing and trading in animals, we need to become increasingly sophisticated in our ability to combat them. So what Zoo Hackathon does is it generates innovative ideas for ways in which we can fight wildlife trafficking at all stages, from poachers on the ground to preventing poaching, you know, from ever happening to helping enforcement detect and interdict trafficked wildlife, but also to reducing demand. And because when the demand stops, the killing stops. And so what Zoo Hackathon does is it brings together young minds, right? These are university students, sometimes even high school students, but mostly early career professionals to generate innovative ideas and innovative solutions for combating wildlife trafficking. These don't have to be super high tech. Sometimes low tech is better, especially in remote places, but there are new ways of thinking about how we can stop this problem. And so with Zoo Hackathon, we generate these ideas and look for ways to support their onward development into fully fledged tech solutions. But one of the biggest outcomes from this event is the fact that we're bringing people together, most of whom who have never heard of wildlife trafficking and raising awareness and building this international cooperation and generating the next generation of conservation-minded coders. Yes. So can you give us an example of, say, an idea that an earlier hackathon came up with that is in practice? Sure. So there are a lot of ideas that have been generated. For example, um, we have a Chrome plugin. Um, There is something called Conscious Consumer that a team developed to help alert potential buyers, you know, of products that their products might be problematic or use trafficked wildlife products. There's also a tool that a team from Columbia generated an idea that would help identify traffic timber by sort of alerting authorities to irregularities between what, you know, they were actually carrying versus what they were claiming to carry. Now, a lot of these ideas are still looking for their ultimate homes. But the teams of young folks who have come up with these ideas continue their professional development in software and engineering. And we continue to look for NGO partners who are interested in taking these ideas onward. And these hackathons, there are several of them throughout the world. They're not just happening at Jury's Hotel at DuPont Circle here. You've got people in three continents. Talk about the international aspect of it. Tori? Yeah, so we're having eight events take place this year. They hit every region of the world except for Europe. 
we're kind of having some in-person events and then we're having two events that are all virtual taking place across regions. So basically what we want to do is take these new audiences of these university students and coders that really don't know much about wildlife trafficking and Throughout the program, they essentially learn about these challenges. And then we throw in some fun things like some presentations from wildlife experts or experts from technology organizations. There's some quizzes. There's some really awesome prizes. So it's a pretty intense weekend, but it's a lot of fun. And everyone is really excited once the event is over. We're speaking with Tori Peabody. She's Zoo Hackathon Program Manager and with Dr. Ali Swanson. She's a Foreign Affairs Officer in the Bureau of International and Environmental and Scientific Affairs, both at the State Department. And there's a diplomatic wrinkle in here in that you have events going on in foreign countries, the Congo and so forth, and in Southeast Asian countries, yet it's the United States State Department convening. So there must be a hosting function that happens from those countries so that you don't feel like interlopers, you know, in an internal problem of another country. Yeah, absolutely. So countries that are hosting these zoo hackathons are often very receptive to joint efforts to combat wildlife trafficking. And we sometimes have host government participation in our events. It was especially true when we had in-person events. But sometimes the embassies that are leading the sort of local zoo hackathon programs will engage with government partners to help identify problems that are most pressing locally, you know, and that resonate the most with local communities. I think this was true in the Columbia event uh, a couple of years ago, right? The embassy engaged with the host government to identify, you know, what are the biggest issues that we can help jointly address? So I think one of the key outcomes too of these new hackathon events is that they build this international cooperation because no one can fight wildlife trafficking alone. This is an international effort. It's a global issue. And through Zoo Hackathon, we're able to build that international cooperation and work together on these issues. And then also just to chime in, sometimes representatives from the local governments will participate on the judging panel because the participants throughout the event will create a solution idea. And then at the end of the event, they are supposed to pitch their solution idea to a panel of judges. So that's also another really cool opportunity for the local governments to participate. And then they can kind of provide their input on the ideas as well. Not every government involved here has, let's say, exactly the same level of integrity, say, that the U.S. government does. Animal trafficking can be a economic driver in some of these countries. So you have to know the government is not in cahoots with the traffickers, and that's not an unknown phenomenon around the world. So how do you tread that one? And also the people participating could come into the crosshairs of the traffickers who are often violent people. So our experiences with Sioux Hackathon have always been a very cooperative and positive experience with our host governments. I think that As we know, through the process of identifying countries of concern under the Eliminate, Neutralize and Disrupt or End Wildlife Trafficking Act, 
you know, government complicity and engagement and in benefit from wildlife trafficking is a real concern that the U.S. does seek to address through various channels. We have the End Act, in which we call out countries of concern, and we also have visa and eligibility programs in which we identify known traffickers to send a strong signal that they're not welcome in the United States. But we also have bilateral and regional cooperation and building those positive cooperative processes and this sort of history of cooperation is really important to arriving at a positive outcome. And with Zoo Hackathon, the way that people participate in Zoo Hackathon has not raised concerns about retaliation. Violence against environmental defenders is a very real thing, you know, and that is something that State Department recognizes in their processes, you know, for addressing that and recognizing that. But because with Zoo Hackathon, we're engaging in new ideas and none of these participants are like going undercover or calling out criminals, it has remained a very positive avenue for cooperation. And I think that's sort of where its strength lies, is this ability to cooperate and be positive on this shared goal. All right. And just out of curiosity, what are the top animals that are trafficked in some of the countries, Bolivia, the Congo, Gabon, Saudi Arabia, Uganda, Vietnam, what species are we most concerned about? Globally, it's pangolins. Um, Pangolins are the most trafficked mammal in the world, in particular for their scales, which are used in traditional Chinese medicine. In the countries you've mentioned, the issues vary place to place. So in Latin America, broadly, uh, live bird trade is a huge issue, as well as live reptile trade. There's a lot of convergence or sort of Uh, laundering of wild-caught animals, uh, trafficked animals through the, quote, legal captive trade, right? So, um, and that can make it very hard to discern what's legal and not. African elephants for their ivory, you know, is long recognized as a classic emblem of the fight against wildlife trafficking. Cheetahs uh, are another, I think, rising example, especially going into the Middle East for pet trade. It varies widely. Well, we're glad you're on the job. Dr. Ali Swanson is a foreign affairs officer in the Bureau of International, Environmental, and Scientific Affairs at the State Department. And Tori Peabody is a Zoo Hackathon program manager. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. 
uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship 
uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.